Hey there, welcome to SaaS Unbound, brought to you by SaaS Group. I'm your host, Anna Dana, and this is the show where we chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business a success. And today with me is Andreo Iglesias, uh, CEO of the SaaS Institute. Uh, the SaaS Institute helps SaaS companies streamline their sales processes and develop their sales strategies. So we are here to learn how to get there, how to get the sales that you always wanted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Hi, Andre, it's great to see you here. Hi, Anna, thank you for the intro. Glad to be here. <laughs> well, that's perfect. Well, uh, you know, I always say, you know, it's, it's a podcast for founders and experts, but you're actually the first one that um, is not a founder, that is an expert, a CEO. And I think it's great to start with you because you have the knowledge that every founder wants how to do the sales because um, the development of software has been simplified over the last 10 years so much, but no one has really solved the problem of uh, marketing and selling the product. So here you go. The stage is yours. If we could get a bit of a background from you first, that would be great. Yeah, of course. Yeah, indeed, the, the sales problem is a recurring problem. I think it's always been like that, right? If you have a great product, but you don't have no customers, then uh, you're in a bit of a pickle. So <laughs> so we see this uh, this problem very, um, very recurrent, right? So where, where do we start for, for my story? Okay, uh, indeed, I am not uh, the founder of a company. I joined a company a bit later. Um, so, so what about my story? I started engineering. Uh, in Spain and France, and I, at some point, uh, in Spain is very focused on like uh, working in a factory in a laboratory, very technical. But in France, uh, most of people go to to management or business positions, right? So that's when I, I work within a couple like uh, very big corporations, and I I discovered that I really wanted to to dip uh, to go a bit deeper in this in this part of, of businesses. So I joined a, a startup, a very early stage. I think we were less than ten people in Berlin. Uh, Aclamio, referral marketing, great atmosphere, great moment to join uh, Berlin 2015. Amazing. And from there, um, I joined to grow the international markets, right? The company was a bit established, no? uh, just hit a product market fit in Germany, and they want to grow internationally. And then we, yeah, we did a lot of errors, no? uh, a lot of mistakes and learning by doing. And uh, and I grew with the company until uh, until I, I I handled I managed all the part of sales operations, and then um, I found that it was a very interesting topic, right? That I was not the only one. I get in contact with the SAS Institute at the at the time, and 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 shortly after uh, I, I I saw that this was an opportunity. They wanted uh, me to join the team, and then I I. I joined them, right? So, so, so the interesting thing here is like I suffer from this problem firsthand, and then I, 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 I like the light bulb came. It's like, well, there's a better way of doing it. You know, there's not only like uh, some salespeople trying to improvise, trying to make their magic and and work their soft right. skills, but actually there's a system behind it. Okay. All right. And hopefully, you know, hopefully we get we get to at least uh, get a sneak peek on the system today. Mm -hmm. uh, so great. Uh, and uh, I would love to also uh, touch uh, on that a little bit, like you transitioning into a startup as a CEO. Uh, and, um, you know, at this podcast, even there are some founders that 
the companies got acquired, you know, and they had to step down as founders. So we hear their side of the story a lot. Like, how do you deal with maybe a bit of a personality crisis? Like, how do you handle um, getting all this operation, operational documents to another person? So basically, how do you give your baby away to another uh, human being? So we never hear a story from the other side. So how do you take it? How do you maintain the culture or like, how do you make sure that you and the founders are aligned? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And in my case, this happened uh, just when COVID hit. So I, I joined the company and one week later, the whole thing came down. So it was a very, a very interesting time, right? But I would say um, what, what happened was that um, those are very clear objectives. Uh, there's a very clear methodology that uh, we wanted to follow, but then things changed, right? So first things I would say, there was a, like a lot of confidence from the beginning. So they really trusted me. They looked for me. They, they kind of headhunt me. No, we work a little bit in the past in a, in a project. And, um, and I felt like there was a lot of confidence. So, okay, uh, you can do this. Uh, you are now in charge. Um, do whatever you feel necessary. Right. Another thing I would say is like transparency. I I don't really like to brag so much, right? Uh, even sometimes it goes against me when you have to to talk to customers and, and say all the things that you do bad uh, badly. It's not it's not great. But um, this involves also like a lot of transparency. So all the mistakes are done, all the goals are not hit, all the problems that I have with customers or, or with the organization uh, was very good um, communicated as well. Right. And then uh, there was, um, given the circumstances, what happened is the founders moved to, so they, they uh, started with the consultancy. There was some changes in the company. Some people left also COVID. So there was like a big restructuring. So the headcount, uh, like on, not only was shorter, but a lot of them moved to the, the software that the bluebirds that they, they developed, uh, uh at that point. Right. right? And then they they're still started. handling it. Mm -hmm. And so, so, so basically what happened is like the, the founders moved to, take care of the startup, like where they had funding and they had most of the workforce as well. So also was, like, I would say, a lack of, a lack of time. So um, there was uh, bigger fish to fry. You have uh, you have investors behind you, uh, you know, and a consultancy, so to say, it's much uh, less uh, cash intensive. So uh, a startup, it's burning cash all the time. A consultancy, we have the advantage of, of being on the other side, right? There's, there's, we don't have this problem. We always, we have to be cash positive. So that's that's also a relief for them as long as this happened. So as long as we were doing good economically, there was nothing to worry. And I would okay. say the last point as well is the feedback of the market, the feedback of the customers and the company. So they were also checking that everything was all right. Luckily, I tried to make sure also the conditions were complicated. So there was not much acquisition. So it was critical that uh, the customers were happy. And uh, like they said, that, let's say the few projects that had at the time were doing it, uh, were done properly. And that's, that's what happened. They checked with the customers, customers were very happy. The team was also like uh, working all right. So that was, um, I think all the levers were aligned, but I would say like a vote of confidence and, and uh, transparency and giving the space and time to do it was was key for me right oh i loved how you said that uh you know even if we didn't have many customers it had to be done properly it's like uh 
imagine you're a performer, right? You're performing a service, right? So no matter how many people are uh, in the concert hall, you still have to do your best. So mm -hmm. that's perfect. I love the approach. Uh, okay. Well, thank you for, for a bit of a backstory. And let's get to the good stuff. <laughs> so spill the bins. Uh, you know, uh, first of all, probably, you know, you were talking about a lot of mistakes and probably people are coming to you not from the very beginning, right? It's not like I want to uh, build a business. I come to you and, you know, I say, Andreo, you know, how do I do the sales? I People probably come at a bit of a later stage. Right. So when something is not working or something is not done right. So what are the most common mistakes that people uh, are coming to you with? And what are SaaS businesses lacking? Um, something that you see uh, as a trend? Okay. So I, I think I have a long list. So I'll try to get to the most uh, interesting points. Uh, <laughs> right. But um so, so to give a bit of context, right? We work mostly with B2B companies. So they normally, the sales need a human behind them, right? It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a high enough ticket. We can talk about numbers later if you want. And also um, we work in relatively early stages. So let's say pre-series B, normally pre-series A. So typically it's a team, a small team, maybe 10 people, maybe 20 people, maybe 50 people that they somehow hit product market fit. So they have a, a sign that the market is going well. They had uh, some network, they had some uh, beta version that works pretty well. And now is the time to scale, right? So there is, there is several things that, um, that get on the way. For me, and what I see that most founders or like uh, head of sales or the responsible of scaling the companies is struggling with is to say no, to say no to this, those markets that don't fit, right? So. As a founder, mm -hmm. you have a nice product, you know, you have a big problem that you want to solve in the world and you can say, okay, my product could help virtually anyone or any company that this and fits this condition. But this condition sometimes is very broad. So you have a bunch of different markets, you have a big insurance companies, you have a middle, maybe consultancy agencies, you have a small restaurants. You can say, yeah, my, my, I don't know, my emailing service or my cybersecurity or my HR tool could help anyone. And they don't focus on, on neither of those. They try to take a bit of everything which uh, as a founder, you have to be aware, you have to listen to the market. Sometimes people request information, no? you get some inbound leads uh, from different sources, but this is not a good strategy for the sales team. Normally when it's a small sales team, if you can have a right. one team dedicated to everything, it's big company problems, but not in that stage. Okay. Right. All right. So, so that's one. And uh, um, let's get to maybe a bit of an earlier uh, stages companies. So, and I don't want to steal the business, but what to do <laughs> if you don't have a sales team, or maybe you have a sales team, but, uh, you don't really want to end up asking someone to fix what's not working. So basically what, what kind of processes should be there from the very beginning to avoid getting to the SAS Institute at the very end? <laughs> <laughs> no, of course. I mean, we, we talk with a lot of companies that they don't have this problem, right? But, but typically it's like a tech founder or people that really focus on product or technology and they lack this understanding. So they can learn, like there's a lot of books like uh, Predictive Revenue from Aaron Rose, a typical one, and they understand the concept, but putting it, putting, putting it in action, it's another thing, right? Right. 
Um, and that's that's what we'll step in. So we don't do rocket science, right? Uh, we want them to understand it, to to implement it, and then we we leave. But um, to continue for with your question, what what should they do at the beginning? And there's several stages of it. I would say at the at the very beginning, what what let's say like you have a small company, um, you're starting, maybe you have a couple of customers or ten customers, maybe you don't have any. It's very important, and this is a metric that will accompany the company uh, will will accompany the business for a long time. It's uh, to have opportunities. What does it mean? Opportunities are qualified opportunities. Nowadays means having a meeting with your customer, right? Having a conversation with a right person of a potentially target company that wants to talk about that thing, right? Um, they don't have enough of those. So either they try to like send out like a immense email list a couple of people answer normally the people that are early movers or like the more tech oriented. So it's not a very good picture of the, the real market because it's the only the two outliers that could answer. Or they focus on these people that already talk with, maybe they're from the, the network, they have from, from from some partners, some introductions, some referrals, and they keep them in the pipeline. So they lack these new meetings with people. So let's say we want to try a new market. We want to try how... Um, real estate agencies do. And I think it's a good target for me and uh, send a bunch of emails, but then talk with any, that's a problem because I would have a fake image. What I would say uh, is like once they have, let's say 10 meetings or 10 calls with 10 different companies in this sector, everything becomes clearer. And also they can know, okay, do I need someone that I can scale that? They can generate more meetings. Does it market is a, is a good fit? Maybe they don't have the money to arrive too early. So I would say you want to have conversations with your target market and you have to know who your target market is, not a conversation with an insurance with this. So focus on one market and then try to have some conversations with those and then take a decision. Otherwise, it's very hard. Right. I think it's very important what you said. Uh, there is a human being behind it because the ticket is high enough. And uh, I had another founder here and she was talking about exactly that. Like she wasn't able to at first get uh, someone to talk to her about a product just because what she was selling was like 50 bucks, right? No one really wants to spend an hour talking uh to, to a founder that's selling a product for 50 bucks, right? When it's 5,000, 50,000, then, you know, it's a different story. Mm -hmm. uh, but 50 is maybe uh, too, too little of a ticket. So how high should be a ticket to, to expect someone to pick up and talk to you? Okay. So, so, so the, the, um... The minimum amount that we see, and we work with several markets, so we would, if we focus on Southern Europe, uh, Spain, and Italy, you could go as low as 2,000. So mm -hmm. annual ticket, ARPA, no, annual um, revenue per account, or like an annual ticket that you have for, for one customer, will be as low as 2,000. When you go more Central European, maybe it's 5,000, 6,000. When you go more mature markets, maybe UK and US, they start saying 10,000, 15,000, right? But here is, is kind of a thumb rule. If you have a very fast market, you can lower your ticket. If you need a lot of meetings for a customer, it's not worth it. Not only because the customer will not want to talk to you, but mostly because it's if the CAC is too high. So if you have to have two meetings with one person for a uh, hundred bucks per year, you just uh, if acquiring a customer costs you five hundred euros, you cannot um, uh, and and you and you earn hundred of them um, is a, a very big of a gap, right? You're right. just wasting four hundred. 
It might happen sometime in the past where it's very cash intensive and you, you invest of having these customers. In most businesses nowadays, this is not a winning formula. So only for the bare nature of we have to talk to our customers, um, you need a minimum ticket to make this process, no? like this human to human uh, work for you. And then up to, I would say, 100, 150,000 euros. After that, it starts being more like an enterprise selling. So it relies a lot of relationships, a lot of uh, networking. It's a, a long time to earn this customer, you know, a lot of conversation, a lot of stakeholders. And there the process starts changing. So I would say this, the range that we normally give is from two or five up, up to 100,000. Okay. All right. And uh, what exactly are the businesses that you're working with? What what are the industries? Okay. So there's a huge array of industries and some companies are in other stages, right? But typically is uh, industries will have like a, a big customer base and a, a high enough ticket. For example, cybersecurity is a big, mm. uh, a big one of our industries. Uh, travel as well. We work with a lot of companies in the travel uh, in the travel sector. A lot about uh, customer insights or sales and marketing or tools as well. And okay. then there's other analytics, let's say finance tools, real estate, HR. So there's several several industries, right? Uh, people would say, no, no. If you only work with cybersecurity, if I have a, a CRM for 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 hotels, it doesn't work. But surprisingly enough, and the business works very well because um, there's a lot of things that you can learn from other companies and the system is pretty stable. So uh, giving this range and this business, uh, if you do outbound or like uh, you know, sales development as, as we do, it's, it just works. So, so that's a, a big advantage for, for us and for all the companies implementing the system. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate or customer referral program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Rewardful automatically tracks referrals, calculates commissions, handles upgrades and downgrades all seamlessly in the background, whether you sell one-off purchases or recurring subscriptions. Companies like Podia, Copy.ai, Barometrics, Synthesia, and many, many more are already using Rewardful to add that sweet, sweet MRR to their businesses. Sign up now at Rewardful.com for a free 14-day trial and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. Okay. What would you say, like, uh, based on, on your experience, what industry would you say is the easiest to onboard to get somebody to pick up the phone and what's the more, most difficult? Oof, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very good question and not, it's not always about, about industries, right? But I would say when you try to target either IT profiles, so developers, uh, chief of cybersecurity, um, even some product people, that tends to be hard unless it's an agency that does it and these are the people talking to customer or when you try to go straight to C-level for big companies, right? Okay. Um, you need to have a very intense strategy for that. You need to have a very clean messaging. You need to be pretty good. All What's right. the easiest? I would say I'd seen a lot of companies talking to HR departments 
or like companies so where where the people are more open to talk and discuss and let's say sometimes they have more time also with the public um with governments and the public sector but then it's a it's a double edged sword right because a lot of targets so they have a lot of time so they talk to you but they don't have a lot of budget so it's very easy to get this first meeting but then it's very difficult to get them to sign and on the other side if you talk to developers and CEOs uh, it's pretty hard to get them on the phone and get a meeting with them once you got that it goes very fast it converts very well so what we normally recommend is have a clear mapping and have a couple or three buyer personas potentially in the process and try both of them try with the ceo try to the head of and then try to the end user and see where the technique works some people uh, for some people it's it's very clear they have to go to the ceo for some others at the end user but you have to have like a let's say a different strategy or a different approach for each of them Right, because one will be willing to talk, but uh, a totally different person might actually have the decision power and the purchase power uh, in the company, right? And it's yes. funny that you said HR. I remember when I was just starting uh, in marketing, there was an article uh, about some sneaky marketing techniques that you can try, uh, like how to get somebody to talk to you uh, in a company if you're, if you're selling a B2B software. And uh, it said HR because like HR's job, basically uh, a part of their job, a big part of their job is opening emails, seeing if, you know, if there is a, a great um, candidate for, for the job. So like write them an email and uh, in the... <laughs> In the title, say that, you know, you're applying for a job, but actually in the body of the email, tell them what you actually want. So it was so sneaky, but to, honest to God, I tried it a few times and it worked. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's funny that you said that. Uh, okay. Yeah. On, uh, that, that was very interesting. So, <clears throat> okay. Let's, let's get, uh, maybe a bit deeper into the whole process of streamlining the sales. So, mm -hmm. um, and I think <clears throat> what, what you talk about in, in terms of getting people to talk to you uh, and making the sale person to person makes sense. Uh, but a lot of people don't know how to, how to approach it, like how to find a lot of people to talk to, right? Mm -hmm. how, to, how to make sure that, uh, you know, you schedule not just three, but 3,000 meetings uh, per, per month. So what works for you? Correct. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's the issue. I think that's the question, Anna. Um, and that's mostly the bottleneck of companies, right? It's not like how to get, okay, well, I, I did a demo and then people are not sure how I get them to close. Maybe you have a conversion rate from demo to, to one or to, to signing the contract of 10%, 20%, 30%, but it's very difficult to double that. It's very difficult to switch to 60% all of a sudden. What is much easier is having the double of these meetings, right? Given that the market is big enough, if you go to the top 10 companies of a country, it's, it's a pretty hard, but again, if we're in the range of this ticket, that should happen, right? And that and that is, that is the main challenge. So what do we want is to have a high amount of, of these meetings, of these demos, what we call qualified opportunities, but also the qualified part of them. So not any meeting. And this, there's two main ways of having this. First, we have to have a good list of leads 
right? What would typically happen in a company is like, okay, we want to go to several markets. Let's scrap some list, uh, have a list of 2000 companies, some from this industry, some from uh, like hotels, some are like uh, marketing agencies, some are uh, HR departments in, in big consultancies. And I feed them to my sales team. And then they have enough and say, well, and then, and then they, they ask their salespeople, how, how are you not getting, let's say five meetings a week if you have 2000 leads, no, what's, what's wrong with you? But then they don't realize the problem is, is a company problem, right? So I would say first thing, what a list of leads must have. First, we have to have a clear segment. So we have to know which market are we aiming to, right? And we have to make sure that it's kind of qualified. So if we're going to hotels, okay, what's the minimum amount of, of uh, rooms that, that that hotel might have? What's the region? What's the type of hotel? It's a high-end hotel or it's a cheap hotel? How many stars they have? This is a very important thing because the problems will be different and because then the salespeople have, can have a conclusion, right? I tried this list of high-end hotels with a lot of rooms. Uh, I, I struggle to close meetings and the meetings are closed. They're not interested because they already have a solution and they don't, they don't care about what we want to hear. That's very easy then to switch, to turn. Otherwise you might spend four months just targeting everyone and not knowing what works and what doesn't. So I would say first thing is having a very clear list and a very well segmented target. And the second thing I would say that it's key is, uh, to have it well organized. So not leaving it to chance. What happens to some sales teams as well that, okay, this week I uh, search some companies next week, I try to contact them. And then next week I do the demo, right? And then you have a metric. So, so this month we had a lot of demos and we close a lot. And, but the other month we just created a lot of pipeline because we are contacting right. that's yeah, that, that's what, that's what makes a company uh, not predictable. So you kind of go with the flow. So to say the sales team improvised because it's that have a lot of work doing meetings now, so I cannot do the prospecting and, and, and reaching out to people. And then when I don't have meetings, I, I, I reach out. So what's key here and very easy to, to implement is to have, uh, not only goals in terms of meetings and in terms of, uh, uh closed, uh, customers, but having goals as well in terms of activity. So what we can actually control. So, okay. Every week I start prospecting 20 companies and at least I have to contact them, let's say, uh, five phone calls, three emails and three LinkedIn messages in the time span of 10 days. That's what's going to mark a difference because then we can follow this consistency and that's what will give us like a regular flow. So we have a very good segmented list and then we attack this list with a good system and consistently, um, I would say that's, that's basically like that's the main levers and now we have to do it properly of course that's how that's how we we help companies uh, work but if you have these two things more or less well implemented i would say the generation of opportunities shouldn't be a problem okay all right so i want to ask uh, about conversion but uh another important question and uh, that's uh, that gave me a bit of a throwback into uh, my very early days in marketing um when you know i thought one email is enough. You just <laughs> write two people and it's, you know, it's bad manners not to reply. So one should be enough. And then uh, my, my first manager was, was like, okay, but the, where is your second email? Where is your activation? Where is your uh, like um, email goodbye? If you know, if they're not replying you for a month. And it was such a revelation for me because I thought, oh my God, like people will not reply. <laughs> like how, how could that happen? Uh, so, 
Okay, how many emails are enough? <laughs> When should you stop? Okay, some people will argue that never. If it's a target market and you have a compelling message and you know you can help them, so if you segment it, it's never. But in terms of sales, so you have to know where to put the limit, right? Otherwise, you end up having like thousand leads that you're contacting in parallel. So that's not healthy either way. So the difference with marketing, I would say, is like it's very automated. And normally you put in a sequence and every month you send an email, which is all right. I think it's a great way of nurture the prospects and send them like relevant content and keeping them. Mm -hmm. So when it's the right moment, they contact you or you contact them. But in terms of sales, you have to put like a, a deadline, right? What we normally do is depends on the size of a company. For a smaller company, shorter. For like bigger companies, are longer. But I would say the time span between one and four weeks. So actively contacting uh, a person in a company. And I would say what we normally do is like between three and five emails as well. Might be okay. a bit more. Okay. The key here is normally what we say is like when you are prospecting, when you are trying to contact a person, don't use only the lever of uh, email because you have a person. So you, you're spending a lot of time and energy on that. Uh, automating emails is easy, but we see that it works very well. The multi-channel approach, which are the channels, uh, phone calls, email and LinkedIn, right? It might be different right. with some industries, other social media, some industries are maybe more active in Instagram, in some regions, uh, WhatsApp is, is more like popular than phone, but more or less, these are the levers, right? Right. And there's some studies that show how many times you should insist, but if we send only one email and then let it go or one phone call and then let it go, we're missing the chance. People are kind of like bombarded with messages. Now we have to send the inbox of our buyer persona. Maybe they receive 10. 20, 30 cold emails per day like this one. So we have to be better and we have to be present. So um, the minimum amount that we say is like 10 times. You have to try to contact a person 10 times before letting it go, which could easily mean three messages in LinkedIn, four emails, and then um, the remaining the remaining of calls, no, five calls or four calls or, or something like that. So between 10 and 15 uh, touches should be the minimum. Right. Okay. And uh, everyone's talking uh, about personalization of mm -hmm. cold emails or whatever it is. So, um, and I understand that personalization, like for customer, like B2C is very different, but B2B, how personal can you be when you're selling to a company, to a business? Okay, it's a very good question and it is a hot topic because so what separates for me a good message and a bad message is this level of personalization, right? And what personalization means, means like this message could be sent to anyone and it would make sense versus for what this message is mentioning, for what they're telling me, this message only makes sense to me. So basically people don't label it, don't label it as a spam. They say, okay, this is personalized. This works very well because it makes you um, uh, be different. It makes you like you know uh, be the, this that spot in the in the red uh, in the red sea, right? In the red right. ocean. So, how your you question? How how we should personalize, right? Right. Like, is it even possible to uh, to bring that personalization, to bring that personal touch, and to because you're you're sending an email. Um, Yes, to sometimes to a person, but sometimes to like the whole department, mm -hmm. right? So, 
how do you work there? Yeah. So what I would say is, is 100% right to a person. So talk to a person. So we, we sell to people and the company is the one paying, right? But we are selling to people. That's uh, where the B2B is happening. We're not selling to the company. That's where people get it wrong. Maybe you're selling to different people. You know, the, the CEO wants something different. That the head of product wants something different. Like the procurement person wants something different. But you still have to sell to them, right? So 100% personalized as you're talking to a person. And I would say be as personal as necessary, right? As relatable as necessary. If you, when, when companies say, how I personalize, how I, I, I talk about my product and my project and the value proposition I can propose, for me, the easiest trick that you can apply right now is don't talk about your product, don't talk about your company, don't talk about your benefits, uh, you know, when cold outreach mostly, but instead try um, to talk as you were a very similar company in the industry. So what a customer, like let's say a competitor of this company would say when you interview them about the problems that you that your service or product solves. What would you say? No, it's it's very annoying because I have to download this sheet and then I have to send it to four people and they have to make them a reminder and reply. I know you automated everything in one click, but how does this look today for a potential competitor that is not using a social solution? If you can get this level of detail, say, yeah, but when I send it to the head of HR, Michael, and he has to transmit to the four SDRs that we have, and then each of them send an email and they have to relance in Slack. And, you know, don't, don't be afraid to mention this Slack and Michael and 10 people because that will make you more relatable. And uh, an extra of that, if you can also like do some research on the company, mention where the person worked before, knowing what the responsibilities are, what uh, characteristic of a product you know, uh, whatever it makes them feel that you're sending this message to them and not just, hello, name. I see you work in company and in this role, which everyone knows is automated. You see, hey, Michael, I see you work four years in Vodafone and before you were head of product of this company before moving to to to, to Berlin, no? That's right. going to get their attention. So uh, I would say All just right. go personal. All right. Yeah, that that's actually that that's what I wanted to ask. Like, and again, the question is maybe um, how personal is a bit too personal? Because I also had a very <laughs> weird email once when uh, it was it was personal uh, and and very nice to the point when uh, they actually researched about my family on mm -hmm. Instagram and then they posted something like and something like happy birthday to your son he's cute and stuff like that and that was a bit of a like stalkery personalized so that was a bit of a i don't know i'd say too much mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> so, the, the, there yeah. are some cultural there are some cultural differences here right in the u.s they would say this perfectly fine or there's a lot of people saying that you should go super personal because then they show that you are interested maybe in central western europe that's that's a bit creepy i would say yeah. A very easy way to draw the line is whatever is in their LinkedIn profile mm. or their website or the company report. So everything strictly professional. And let's say LinkedIn is still a professional network. So if you see they right. work here, they studied there, they live there, they posted something that they're working with a dog and they like to do this meditation for the morning, but it's in LinkedIn, I would say it's, it's nice to mention it. I would avoid going to their personal Instagram and checking it, right? For some, yeah. for some customers might work. So if you are like, uh, for example, we work with uh, influencer agencies and they work primarily in, in, in uh, social networks, TikTok, right. uh, Instagram, etc. 
then yes, because you know where the audience, we know, but that's their business. So you, you know, it's, it's not the personal realm. It's already their business. Sure. Sure. The time and the place. Correct. Okay. Correct. Okay. So, uh, let's get to activation. I mean, one thing is getting a person on the call even, right? Mm -hmm. Another thing is converting them into a customer. So mm -hmm. what's the, I don't know, uh, of course, like there is no, uh, solution that fits all, but what's the, like the m little magic trick that maybe helps, uh, most of the companies that you're working with? Yeah, this part is, is a bit more tricky because it depends on the sales process. But what I see, what we see that's uh, mostly lacking, mostly in young companies that are used to receiving inbound or having the first customer as uh, early movers or from the network referrals, is that then um, they don't qualify properly, right? And what do I mean by qualify? Asking the questions to the customer and tailoring your solution to the points that they have. Let's say we have... 10 like value propositions of our product, uh, don't make like a 40 minute meeting talking 90% of the time and mentioning all 10 features. And then at the end asking, does it make sense? And they say, yeah, you have any questions? No. Okay. I'll send you a proposal. And then people say, well, I send like a hundred proposals and only sign three. How do I get them to sign? That's not the issue here. You know, the issue is you right. shouldn't send a proposal to the ones that didn't qualify. Okay. okay. So the, the, the pro, the pro way of doing this here is for every little step of your demo, let's say you have 10 features, you ask them, Hey, right away, how many people are doing this task? Did you try in the past to implement something like this or not? No, no, no. Because why, how you do it? No, no, I have already an automation tool and I, you know that this value proposition is not going to be relevant for them. So move to the next one. Right. And if you present the feature, make sure it makes sense for them. And also if you can put like a dimension. Uh, behind it, if you get them to say, yes, this is a problem for me. Yes, this makes sense. And yes, I believe this will save two hours. This will save, I don't know, uh, 5,000 euros on onboarding. This will save uh, lowering the churn rate by 5%. And um, then, then is when we have the good, uh, a good hand to keep playing, right? Otherwise, it's just like um, spray and pray. You know, you're dumping all your information. Right and praying for the best. That's not uh, like sales process. That's like kind of like a hope, uh, let's say hope management. No, I told yeah. them everything. Let's see if it works. So is it a bad sign if uh, your potential customer doesn't have any questions at the end? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Because, <laughs> Very honest. <laughs> yes. Also because a good seller would, will not like just tell them that this is a problem. We'll ask how they do. We'll maybe put an example of other companies and will validate them with them. This is a problem. So uh, the good seller will not say this is a problem for you and we can help with the solution. We'll help the customer uh, say it to them, like think about it and then say it because once the person is saying it and agrees on that, people normally don't contradict themselves. So that's, that's a very good key. How you do that by controlling the narrative, how you control the narrative by having questions, having scripted questions, not improvised. How are you doing this? No, no, no. You know that they might have a CRM and you know that maybe sending the emails automatically might be a problem. That's the question we're going to ask because our feature solves that. If I ask them this question, they don't identify with it. They don't think it's an important issue. We should move on. If they don't identify with any of those, they don't identify the pain. It's not the right customer. I would say just don't move forward with the sales process because you will send a proposal. You will uh, go after a potential customer. 
that was never a potential customer that you ha you should have disqualified three meetings ago. And I think right. that's the major problem. Okay. All right. So, uh, one more, uh, question just about you, your personal kind of beliefs in the whole, uh, sales system. Um, what's better in the long run, uh, inbound or outbound? Okay. That's a, it's a very good question. The good companies do both. Okay. And I think yeah. it, it works in different stages. I would say outbound is, a a quick answer channel. So if we want to test something quickly, you have you want to have quick feedback. Feedback is 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 very quick, but then it doesn't compound as much, right? So you can invest right. like hiring two three people, have uh, quickly some meetings, but that that normally tends to stabilize. If you invest in marketing, uh, in content, and you get this inbound at the beginning, it will be very difficult. You have to iterate a lot. We'll have no answer maybe for six months, twelve months. But once you hit this lever you not only capture the demand that you have, but you also generate some. So that's that's long scale. What companies that we work with normally do is at the beginning, trust in outbound because they can test it quickly and then start investing in inbound. If they can do both at the same time, that's great because they work very well together. And a lot of, in a lot of times they, they work in the same department. But long-term, you have to have a content strategy. Otherwise, only if outbound... Um, well, um, maybe it's not the best, uh, the best growth, let's say you're not creating uh, much growth with that, but right. still uh, a great channel. Uh, we, we, we believe in outbound. Okay. Completely agree with you. No, I think, uh, uh, I think having both is absolutely important because like you said, uh, it will not probably scale forever and the outbound, uh, and at some point you have to give people the freedom to choose, right? It's not you approaching them, it's they find something about you and think it's it's brilliant and this is something they want to engage with. Mm -hmm. The good thing about Outbound is that you will know pretty quickly. So if you have a, you hit uh, product market uh, um, fit, product market fit, yeah, hit product market fit, it's a bit... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> if you hit product market fit, uh, they will let you know quickly. And if uh, it stagnates and you go after the same people that they don't want to be talked, uh, also the conversion rate will lower. So the best companies that I see them doing is uh, they try outbound. They find, so they have a clear target market. They find the people in the target market. Uh, they find the message that's more relevant for them via outbound. So talking with them. And now they integrate them in their content campaigns, in the landing page. So you have a team of SDRs cold calling some people and you have two or three killer sentences that, that the, the prospects identify with. That's the content. It's going to be pushed in the, your inbound campaigns. So um, it's a very good, like, uh, say, starter, like to start the engine too quickly to know which content is relevant for your, for your audience by talking with them and doing outbound. So I would say start with outbound, figure it out, and then start investing in inbound. It will go much faster. Okay. All right. Awesome. And I have just, uh, just one bonus question left. So uh, what do you think of, of all the marketing trends out there? what is the one that's going to make a difference for the businesses in 2023? Oof. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. I would say, and I've seen this uh, going very good, the content generation. So you make your team create their own content. You make the team like become maker influencers. I've seen this working very well. 
And once you start, let's say you have a team of SDRs, no? the junior people that do cold calling, outbound, et cetera, and they talk to customers all day long. They might not be an expert in the product, in the solution, how technically it's solved, but they are experts of how their buyer persona are dealing with it nowadays, how they're struggling with it. And that's a very interesting content for everyone. So once they start sharing this publicly, they become these experts. So leveraging this, this uh, say, social selling in a less aggressive way. So taking your sales team as part of your marketing strategy, I, I really like that. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's working very well for, for, for some companies that are trying hard. That was great. I really loved uh, uh, that that vision. So thank you so much, Andreo. It's been it's been great talking with you. I think what you're doing with the SaaS Institute and how again how vocal you are about it, how active you are on LinkedIn with you know, and uh, like I mentioned in the very beginning, uh, I went through pretty much all the posts on LinkedIn. Great, uh, great source of knowledge. So you know, find them and just just get in just dive into there uh so and yeah obviously uh thanks for telling your story and sharing all the trends and tips and tricks of how to leverage and streamline the sales process thank you anna for having me and for anyone listening if you want to connect with me in linkedin or follow i will be my pleasure to have a conversation so you can find me on uh, andreo iglesias or the sas institute it will be a pleasure Thank you, Anna. Awesome. Thank you and take care. Bye. Bye-bye. That was yet another awesome conversation on SaaS Unbound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders. And if you're one, reach out to me directly at Anna at SaaS.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS, but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS Group, a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.